You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Welcome, everybody, online. We know you're there with us today. And wasn't that a great story from Mosaic Street Ministry? Love that. Uh, yeah. And, of course, Happy Lunar New Year today. Yeah. Uh, wish I could give everybody here a red envelope, big red envelope filled with something really great in there. But I'm not. So... <laughs> Alas, there's always, always next year. But here we go. Week two of our series, uh, looking at the book of Acts, at the theme of generosity. And our scripture reading is from Acts 4 and Acts 5, where we will put to, te- to the test the claim that all scripture is profitable and helpful. You'll see why I say that when we get there. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Let me grab that mic. Thank you, Corey. Thank you. In the Psalms, it's called Selah. You pause. <laughs> Selah. In the great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a neighbor of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. That's the reading of God's word. Amen. 
you know, the craziest thing happened to me this week. I called around and none of our pastors were available to preach. They all got sick uh, yesterday. It was amazing. Uh, the darndest thing. And then you know what? I called myself. And myself did not want to preach this passage either. And as a matter of fact, I was thinking about it. In a lot of years of ministry, I've never actually touched or preached this passage before. And some of you at this point are like, well, why ruin a good thing? <laughs> why start now? And so if you're like me and reading and hearing what you just read and heard makes you uncomfortable. Okay, three things real quick. Number one. If this is your first time here, and it's always somebody's first time here, welcome, and congratulations. Please come back next week. All right. If this makes you uncomfortable, number two, me too. And third, if you are uncomfortable like I am, well, let me suggest to you, that probably says way more about who we are than about who God is. Okay, so let's make a deal, like a 25 to 30 minute standing social contract, shall we? Here it is. If you'll give me an honest chance with this right here, I promise I'll do my best to at least get you to think about embracing this passage before we're through. Even if that embrace is only a kind of a side hug, okay? Because side hugs are better than no hugs. Am I right or am I right? All right, deal. So let the side hugs of Acts 4 and 5 begin. Here we go. What do we see in this passage? We see three things. Let's try to break it down. Number one, we see what was happening. We'll look at that. Number two, we'll see what happened. And number three, what happened after what happened. So what was happening, what happened, and what happened after what happened. Here we go. Number one, let's see, first of all, what was happening in this first church, book of Acts. What was happening? Well, there we, first we see there was a great unity happening in that church. It says, now the full number, yeah, full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. No one said that anything they had belonged to them was their own, but they had everything in common. This is beautiful. Of course, this wasn't communism, but it also wasn't like a dog-eat-dog -dog survival of the fittest capitalism either. They just cared for each other. There was great unity. Not only that, there was also great spiritual power. It says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the central Christian message. So there was great unity, and it says great power because, third, great grace was upon them all. So let's put it all together. What did great unity plus great power plus great grace look like? Well, it looked like it was expressed like this, like great generosity, like great generosity. Great generosity was what was happening. Look at this. There was not a needy person among them. It's beautiful. As many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So along with great miracle power, the early church was marked by great financial generosity. Now let's pause here for just a moment. By naming these two markers of the first church, miracles and money, side by side, I think we can see clearly what one of our main cultural idols is today. Put it like this. Ask a question. How many of us pray for miracles in our lives? 
You can go ahead and raise your hand. I realize when the pastor preacher asks you a question, it gets a little awkward. Am I supposed to raise it? Am I not supposed to raise it? Okay, it's okay. How many of us pray for miracles in our lives? I do, yeah. As in we pray for a powerful miracle perhaps to happen to us or through us into the life of someone we care about. And we should do that. Please don't stop believing, as Journey says. All right. We ask God to use us to do physical miracles, but how many of us have asked God to use us to do financial miracles. A little harder, right? How many of us have asked God to perhaps use us to heal someone or even to prophesy over someone? But how many of us have prayed for God to use us to provide for someone else? We often pray, God, use me to heal. We far less often pray, God, use me to give. Hmm. Why is it easier to ask the God of the universe, who's the great giver, of every good gift, of all things. Why is it easier to ask him to use us to help heal others, or to help heal a church, rather than use us to provide for others, or provide for a church? Here's one reason, perhaps, why. A man by the name of Ernest Becker. He was a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. Uh, he's not a Christian, by the way. He wrote a real famous book back in the 70s called The Denial of Death. Denial of Death, and he wrote it to look at what the consequences of living life without God were like. He's looking at a time, a period in American history where Americans were beginning to turn in large numbers away from God, 50 years ago. And he said, well, what's life like now? And here's what he said. He pointed out that now, without God to believe in, Americans look to a number of things to help fill the God void, to help us deny the truth, as he put it, that without God, the reality is we live meaningless lives and one day we'll die pointless deaths. Not a happy book, but he's right. He put it like this. Since the main task of human life, of all cultures, is to become heroic and transcend death, every culture must provide its members with an intricate, symbolic system that's covertly religious. Let me try to unpack that. Here's two ways that cultures do this, and our culture does this in particular. Uh, one way in America is what he called apocalyptic romance. Apocalyptic romance. That is, we think if I've got a beautiful or handsome enough partner, uh, they can help me feel good about myself. I mean, I enjoy a lot of good sex perhaps with them. I can feel for a moment or even for a while like my life has a lot of meaning. In other words, your romantic partner becomes the symbolic meaning you drape on your arm or on Instagram. Although he didn't say that. That's kind of before Instagram, right? 1973. He says, you can do that if you want, but don't kid yourself. Deep down, you're still religious. He said, you just found a God in church replacement. Their beauty or their appearance is now the cross you hang your faith on. And their presence, being in their presence, has now become your church. Second, he says, here's how money does that for us. For example, he said, if we, you know, if you have a nice enough house with nice enough countertops, that's a symbol of how you've made it in the world. That's a nice enough car. If you have a nice enough clothes, those things are symbols of how you've made it in the world. If you eat at nice enough restaurants, those all function as secret symbols of meaning. Like, you've defeated death. Look at you, you heroic soul, you. Watch you go. But deep down, he points out, we haven't solved our problem 
our existential crisis by getting rid of God and replacing him with hot bodies <laughs> or new countertops. We've only temporarily denied death. But doing this, he's, oh, it's like drinking salt water when you're thirsty. It only makes it worse. See, now if we're not careful, we're now, we're not directing our money. Now our money directs us. We're not using it. It is using us. And this is why, of course, this has been true for a lot of years here. American Christians, 2023, today give less financially than they did during the Great Depression. But by contrast, look at these Acts 4 Christians here. Look at this one person, this man, Joseph, nicknamed Barnabas. He sells his symbol of meaning. He sold his house in a culture where they didn't have two or three, didn't have a vacation home on the Sea of Galilee. No, they live for the most part hand to mouth. He instead expresses, expresses the mark of a Book of Acts Christian who's received the grace of God, which is the mark of financial generosity. This can't be forced. It's always freely offered. It's always voluntary, but it is the author Luke shows us this is always present. Great grace and great generosity go hand in hand. It's like the great prophet Olaf from the movie Frozen put it. You put them together, it just makes sense. Okay. That little joke always cues you in. It's a didactic teaching element to clue you into the fact that we're going to transition now into point two. All right. Great generosity was happening, which made what happened next so bad and wrong. What happened next? Let's look at it. Number two, what happened? Well, what happened next was an emerging threat to this first church. Now, so far, you can read it for yourself, threats to the first church came only from the outside. This, church, this threat is coming now to the church from the inside. What was it? Well, we read it. On the heels of Barnabas' sale of his land and giving all the money away, a man named Ananias, along with his wife Sapphira, they sort of conspire together. They sell their land, but they act like what they're doing is what Barnabas was doing, but it wasn't. They pretend to be something they're not. They pretend to give something they don't. And after lying to Peter, who tells them, this is demonic, have you ever thought about lying as being demonic? Yeah. He says, Satan has filled your heart and you haven't just lied to me. Who you've really lied to is the Holy Spirit. And the next breath by, he says, by the way, he says, you've lied to God, equating from the beginning the Holy Spirit and God. Okay, each dies in, little Trinitarian freebie for you, each dies in turn and their bodies are taken out and buried out back. Wow. What makes this so chilling, I think, isn't just the fact that these two folks died. No, nor is it Peter who makes it unnerving because Peter, you'll notice, doesn't ask for them to be punished. I mean, he doesn't call judgment down from heaven on them like his buddies James and John would have, if you know them. Uh, you know, even with Sapphira, who dies second, he doesn't ask for it to happen to her. He just sort of predicts it, probably because he saw what happened to her husband, as in, it stands to reason, if it happened to him and she did the same, it could happen to her. But that's not what makes this so unnerving. What makes this so hard for us is the growing awareness, for some of us, that the God 
of the New Testament who, whom we think is somehow different than the God of the Old Testament, like the Old Testament God was primitive uh, and regressive, but the New Testament God, he's loving and forgiving, and he always gives unlimited chances. He's the God of meet the parents. He's so good and accommodating, accommodating. What unnerves us is that perhaps it's the same God, and that this God might actually be responsible for this act of judgment. We sort of, mostly, always cringe at that. We remember the story of Achan. Remember that one? All the way back in the book of Joshua. But how he kept the plunder for himself when he wasn't supposed to. And then he and his whole family, they lost their lives after lying about the whole money bit. And we think, oh, it sucks to be them. Thank God that didn't happen anymore. And then we get to this. In other words, we read Acts 5 and we think, we don't want God to be like that. But we should ask, to be like what? We don't want God to be like what? What is it exactly we don't want him to be like? Think about it. Right now, in the United States, the largest Protestant denomination in our country can't find a leader. The latest nominee backed out again because it's become so tainted, the group has, by its failure to deal with sexual abuse in the ranks of its leaders. That's the, this is the kind of stuff I read as a pastor, apparently. Okay. The Roman Catholic Church, you can read this in the news, you know this faces similar struggles after decades of covering up abuse by clergy and then rehiring known predators. Then I read a story this past week, we'll pull it into our backyard, about an American charismatic pastor. He raised money from his own congregation for his own crypto investment. Then he hit it big, sold it all, took the profits for himself. He made over a million dollars on it, saying the Lord told him he was going to make him rich if he did it. And I read that and I thought, it's not a bad idea. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It's just bad. He's now actually being taken to court by the state. Maybe God told him that, maybe he didn't. But when you, when you read about churches, not just not disclosing abuse, which is bad enough, but then they do what's worse and they rehire known predators who do it again. What does that make you wish for? Hmm? Does that make you wish for God to just forgive, uh, give unlimited second chances? Or does it make you want him, perhaps, to deal out a little bit of just judgment, huh? Now, what if that were your child? What would you want? When you read about ministers uh, running, stealing money, running off with the church secretary, what does that make you long for? I'll tell you. I'll tell you exactly what it makes you long for because I've lived under that story. It makes you want God to put things right, and hear me, not just for your own sake, which is something, but for the sake of the church, for the sake of the bride and the body of Christ, which God loves. Why do you want this? Well, it's because to quote Brendan Manning, this kind of conduct is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And while we may superficially think we want a God who just forgives, mostly because if we were honest, we're thinking about our own conduct. When it comes to not just the conduct of others, but when it comes to the conduct of those who lead in the name of God, lead in the name of Jesus in the Christian faith, we actually long for this, for the God of Acts 5 who deals out 
justice. Becky Pippert, Christian writer, thinker, author, she put it like this. We tend to be taken aback by the thought that God could be angry. How can a deity who is perfect and loving ever be angry? We take pride in our tolerance of the excesses of others. So what's God's problem? But love detests what destroys the beloved. Isn't that good? Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. How can a good God forgive bad people without compromising himself? Does he just play fast and loose with the facts? Oh, never mind. Boys will be boys. Try telling that to a survivor of the Cambodian killing fields or to someone who lost an entire family in the Holocaust. No. To be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil and implacably hostile to injustice. And therefore, when God visits, apparently, judgment on Ananias and Sapphira right here from a very real perspective, it's the most loving thing he can do for this church. He's standing against the sin that could destroy the beloved. I mean, if there's no action here, what can happen to this first beloved church? I mean, what if, what if this deception like grew and grew and grew? What, what if this seed of hell, to quote C.S. Lewis, and Ananias and Sapphira, what if it grew and grew and grew and became the norm? in that church, huh? Uh, Now, where the church's reputation is shattered, uh, charges of financial impropriety just run rampant to the point where maybe even they couldn't find a leader. What if the first church broke apart, failed, dissolved here, and never made it? I don't think it's too strong to say billions of lives, including yours and mine, were on the line right here. God did this to prevent his church from becoming what a church should never be, which is this, a place where people use their money to buy in to positions of influence. A place where people only talk, where members only talk about Jesus, but don't give like Jesus. A place where leaders only look good on the surface, but if you knew what really went on, you'd be appalled. A place where people said they gave, but their tax records told a different story. So what do you want? Do you want a God who just forgives, who always looks the way, allows financial hypocrisy and abuse by Christians and leaders to continue? Or do you want a God who judges and puts an end to all of it? This is our dilemma. It's our dilemma. And when you feel that and you sense that, here's what you're really wanting to know. What you want to know, this is the single question all the Bible's about, from one sense. Is this, how can God forgive the bad? without compromising himself. Hmm? How can God forgive the bad without compromising himself? And the answer is pointed to right here in number three as we see what happened after what happened. So what happened after this severe mercy? What happened after what happened? Three things. It says, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. You're like, I'll bet it did. (laughs) Second, it says, Many, look at that word, many signs and wonders were regularly done. Many miracles kept happening. And third, it said the people held them in high esteem. As in the church experienced public 
Respect. How many of you would want that to happen to the church of Jesus today in our nation? I think I would. See, what happened after what happened is this. A great church became even greater. A great church became even greater. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful later on, however. It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. See, what happened after what happened is what we all long for in the story of the world. We want justice to be done so that beauty can flourish. We want unrighteousness put down so that righteousness can be raised. We want the old to pass, the new to come, evil to lose, good to win. We want life to triumph over death. And that is what happened here in Acts 5. How could it all happen? It could happen because of the little twist we're urged to see right here, which is this. Judgment came down on Ananias and Sapphira. They lied, they died, and they were buried for their own sins. Oh, friends, but this only, it only points us to something way better, which shows us how God can, in fact, forgive the bad without compromising himself. Which is this, on the cross, on the cross, though he lived a perfect life, judgment came down on Jesus And he died, not for his own sins, which were none, but for ours, which were many. And he was carried out and buried so that we, we could pass from death to life. So that we could come out of unrighteousness and be made righteous. So that his symbol, the cross, could break the power of our lesser symbols of hypocrisy, power, love of money, greed, all these things. And if we're honest, we're honest, we're honest. We've all been Ananias and Sapphira in our own way. I know I have. Oh, if we're honest, we know that we, the guilty, should be brought to justice. Oh, but Jesus went in our place to rescue us from judgment by bearing it himself. And that's the good news of the gospel. It is. Jesus, though innocent, died for us, the guilty, to make us whole for all time. We can be free. This shows us if we'll listen closely, free from apocalyptic romance, from greed or the love of money because of Jesus. We can be saved, be generous and loving people who really do good in the community and have the respect of outsiders because of how we live. That's the teaching today. With all that in mind, let me just apply this quickly in two ways. We begin to close. Let me give you now in light of this text, Some bad news and some good news. You're like, good Lord, Morgan, the whole thing was bad news. What are you talking about, more bad news? Okay, all right. Uh, First, quickly, here it is. I'll call it the bad news. More of a challenge. The bad news is this text shows us, text shows us, it is possible to be in a thriving church community, have the miraculous happening all around you, have the grace of God present, but be blind to it and miss it. Because this text says, great grace was upon them all, but apparently the great grace hadn't gone down to the hearts of at least two people, two people who missed it. I like to make this case. I think, I feel like great grace is upon us here at Mosaic. From all the people coming to faith, the 16 baptisms that happened last week, and then there were even more after that, after the service, to the new campuses and churches we've been privileged to start here. I think great grace is upon us all, but is it upon you? Is it upon you? This text just shows us how you can know it is, how you can know it is. But it's also possible to be in the midst of a move of God and not let it touch your heart. 
But here's the good news. Here's the good news. You're like, thank goodness. All right, here's the good news. Verse 11, again, when it says, and great fear came upon the whole church. I love this because this is the first time the word church is used in the book about the church, the book of Acts. The first time this word church is used here, this is kind of amazing. It shows us this tragic moment then finally and fully formed the first followers into the first church. They went from being just followers into a church. And so if this passes and creates in us not fear of punishment, let that go. But fear of the Lord. If it creates the fear of the Lord, that is being aware of his awareness, of being mindful of his mindfulness, of just knowing that he knows that's what the fear of the Lord is. If we know that he knows, if this passage creates that in us, Acts 5 has succeeded. It succeeded. The passage can make us greater. And if and when that happens, now we become something the city has never, maybe never seen before, a whole church, meaning this, we become not just the church in its entirety, but the church in its integrity. Not just the church in its entirety, not just the whole church, but a church that is whole, you see. My prayer today is that this passage would make two things. It would make you and me, the church, better and whole. It did once. Let's let it do the same for us. And secondly, finally, please come back next week. <laughs> I promise it'll be way more encouraging. Okay, well, let me take a moment and pray for you as we begin to close. Lord, thank you for this. Lord, let this make us whole. Be people of integrity. Lord, even as a, we perhaps sense that great grace is upon us, let it drop all the way down. It causes us to be generous with what you've given us. Lord, we stand under the weight of this word today, trusting that it can make us better. And we ask for it to do so for the sake of your name and your people and your body. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.